0: So we're continuing our series in the Gospels, and I want to um, start out with this, that there are two ways that people talk about the Christian life that I find that are really unhelpful. One, is, and you hear this a lot through preachers and just uh, all kinds of people talk about this, but um, one of the ways that is unhelpful is that um, they talk as though if you follow Jesus, everything in your life will go well. Oh, hold on. Um, the treehouse is dismissed and middle school is dismissed. Sorry guys. I'm zoned in here. We all get, I think you already took care of it. All right, let's keep doing it. All right. So there's two unhelpful ways that people talk about the Christian life. Uh, one of those ways is that people say, if you follow Jesus, everything in your life will go well. Everything in your life will be good. Uh, you won't have any problems. And the focus when, when you believe or when people talk about this, uh, that it's like that, is that it's all about solving all of my problems and all about my comfort and really just all about me. And God is there to help us solve, all, overcome all those things. And so then the other unhelpful thing is it's an overreaction to that perspective. They say, no, 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 that is not right. There is no prosperity gospel. But it's an overcorrection. And they talk about the Christian life, or they say the Christian life is all about suffering. And, the, and you look through this lens of suffering, and the focus is, uh, is on the pain and the trouble that we experience. And it's almost kind of alluded to that the more trouble and pain you have in your life, the more holy you are and the more holy you're becoming. I would say those are two extremes that are unhelpful. And the reality is there's truth in both perspectives. There's truth in both of those perspectives. But I think these perspectives miss the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news. It's good news. The way I would define it or summarize the good news um, or the application of it is Christ is life. Christ is life. He is everything we, were looking, we are looking for in life. Peace, joy, happiness, all those things. Christ is life and following him is the best way to live on this earth, period. Following him is the best way to live on this earth. If you take any of his principles and you apply them to their life, it, they produce good things in your life, kind of like a healthy summer garden produces fruit. As you follow Jesus good things start to appear in your life. Take, for example, if you actually apply forgiveness, being quick to forgive, and sacrificial love to your closest relationships, you, you will have good relationships. It's not easy, but that's just one example where Christ is life and following him is the best way to live on this earth. And I think a good, good, uh, good truth that goes along with that to kind of solve that tension of, is the Christian life all good? Everything's good? Or it's, is it all suffering and pain? A good tension point is, if you follow Jesus, Jesus said, he promised, you will have trouble on this earth. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He's with you, he's overcome the world. And therefore, your trouble, when you're dependent on Christ, will not overwhelm your experience of peace and joy found in Christ because Christ is bigger than any trouble you face. And I think that's a good tension point. Why do I bring this up? Because today we're, the, the message that we're looking at, is Jesus is talking about the trouble we will face or the suffering we will face that comes along with following him. And I think it's important to point out, yes, the Christian life, there is trouble, there's suffering, there's persecution, but it's not all trouble. So remember that as we're going through this. Remember, this is a part of the Christian life. It's not the whole Christian life. I think that's an important principle. So let's look at the scripture. We're in Matthew chapter 10, and we'll read through it. And he called his disciples, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is also called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, not Peter. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You would uh, So... Jesus calls, his so last week we talked about this, Jesus was saying, look, the, the harvest is ripe, but there are, there are a shortage of workers. And now he pulls his closest disciples that have been traveling with him, he pulls them together, and he's going to prepare them to be sent out. And so before we get into this and start walking through this today, there's a really important principle that we need to know. As we read scriptures about how to read the Bible. And so, and it can be applied uh, throughout scripture, but especially these gospels. It's this if we don't understand the original context of the scripture, we will not, we will misunderstand how to apply it to our lives. If we don't understand the original context, the context is the the situations or circumstances that surrounds an event. The people, the place, the time, the conditions, what was happening. If we don't understand, and in this case, it's a letter, and it's written to a certain group of people. And so if we don't understand... Uh, the context we misunderstand it. There's a Scottish pastor. His name's Dick Lucas, and they call this the Lucas Principle. I think it's incredibly helpful for us to be able to understand this point about understanding context. He says this. It's real, real direct. Remember, he's not talking to you, stupid. Do you get that? Remember. He's not talking to you, stupid. So when you're reading Scripture, remember, He's not talking to you, stupid. And I know it's a little direct, but it's helpful because if you don't understand that the first-person audience is not you, because if that's the case, because we do this, we, we, you know, especially if you haven't spent time in the Bible lately, it's very tempting just to go, Lord, speak to me today, and then you just kind of casually flip open the Scripture. What if you come to the Scripture, kill all the survivors in the land? This principle is helpful. Hey, stupid. He's not talking to you. Um, but what if it's um, uh, sell all your possessions and give them away to the poor? Oh, okay. Do I need to do that? God, are you speaking to me right now? That's the passage you chose. It's it's. Hey, he's not talking to you primarily. That's the point. And there's so many scriptures that can be taken out of context that we have to understand. If we don't understand the original context, the original Intent, we will misunderstand how to apply the scripture. And that's really important today because right here in this passage, we see he called his closest disciples together. There was a bunch of disciples at this point following him. He pulls them together, his closest 12. And Matthew goes out of his way to name them. And he says to them, I'm sending you out. I'm giving my authority to you. I'm giving my authority to you today to heal the sick, to cast out demons and do all these, all diseases. And so, but we, to get today's passage, we must, because there is application for us, but we must understand that original context. Jesus was speaking to a specific group of men in this passage. And so what's interesting when you look at this list of named disciples The only, like, distinguishing characteristics, if you read the list, it just says their names. The only distinguishing marks are if there was two of them. Well, this is, uh, you know, Simon, not Peter, or the one they call Peter. And here's the other Simon, or, or James, there's two James. This is James, son of Zebedee, not the other James. And so he distinguishes that, and then he puts... God bless Judas, who had the ultimate sin. He said, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. And, but he doesn't say their, their, um, their jobs. He doesn't say their social status. He just names them. And so the point of this, I think, is really, really good, and it's a really good application for us, is these were ordinary men that Jesus chose. Je- Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God on earth, and he picks Ordinary men. These were not men of great social status. They did not have great wealth. They were not even that smart. And he chose them to build, his, these guys would go on to build his church. They were the foundation of the church. And I think the application that we can take from this, in this little part right here, is that Jesus doesn't require us to be well equipped to, to, one, be in his kingdom and to to participate in his mission. He's calling each of us, this is good news, he's calling each of us to be a part of his mission to build the kingdom of God on earth. And he, he, he calls each of us to do it, not somewhere over there. Some people might be called to go somewhere. But many of us, most of us are called to do this in our everyday, ordinary lives. And so if you feel like, well, I'm just not good enough, or I'm not equipped enough, I don't have enough resources, I don't have enough intelligence, I don't understand enough, God has called you, as you are, to do the best you can with his mission in your everyday ordinary life, whether that means raising children right now, or doing a a mundane job, or an awesome job. No matter whether you have a little bit of money right now, or a lot of money. He's called you in your everyday, ordinary situation. And so that's one cool application we can take from this. So then it starts to heat up a little bit. Verse 5, he says, These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go. Siri's trying to do stuff here. What's happening? My kids keep changing the language on here too. That was Irish. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he says, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7, And proclaim to the, as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Uh, without pay. Verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborers deserve their food. And whatever the town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come from you. The, the greeting would have been this shalom. It means peace be with you. And so if it's a worthy house, let your peace remain on it. But if it's not a worthy house, let your peace, your peace return to you. Verse 14, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town that rejects you. And so Jesus called his his closest disciples together, Matthew names them by name. He's speaking to a specific group of people. This message is for them primarily, not us primarily. And he, call, he sends them out and he says, cast out demons, heal lepers, heal all diseases. Do these great miracles as you proclaim the gospel to verify the power of the gospel, that the gospel, that the kingdom of God is breaking in to the earth with the, with the coming of Jesus. And so first thing that the, the first question I have in verse five is why does Jesus tell them not to go to the Gentiles or Samaritans because he had already gone to and Gentiles were non jews He had already gone to some he had already healed some he already helped some. the mission as we know on this side of history we know. The mission was for the whole world, which was promised way back when, thousands of years ago, to Abraham. Your seed, your family will bless the entire world and future generations. We know that God's message is for everybody. So why did Jesus in this verse 5 say, don't go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Go to the Jews first, the house of Israel. And the answer is this is his priority, his first part of the mission, he had to bring it to the Jews the lost sheep of Israel, and present them with the good news of the gospel about the kingdom of God to give them an opportunity to respond. And then once that was done, he could open it up to the rest of the world. And so that, that's the short answer on that. And so then the next part is he basically tells them, don't take anything with you, which is kind of un, not great advice. Don't take any travel uh, provisions with you. You're going you're gonna to have them provided for you on the journey. And so why does he send them without these normal travel posi- uh, provisions? I think two reasons. One was for, to benefit the disciples, and the other one was for the Jewish communities, the towns they would visit. One, he was, I think he was testing and expanding the disciples' faith. If you if you've seen the, the show chosen it's it's one of the best in my opinion uh, one of the best shows done about the Bible they, do, they they do an incredible job kind of capturing the humanity of Jesus the disciples seem like real people because some of them have a lot of attitude they have a lot of questions they' they're just they bicker it just it's awesome I, I highly recommend that show the the chosen um, but just imagine based on seeing that or just kind of what you know about the disciples Jesus is saying, hey, you're going on this mission. You're going to proclaim the gospel. You're going to do all these miracles. But you're going into these towns. Don't take any camping gear. Don't take any food with you. Don't take your staff. Don't take uh, your clothes. It's all go- going to be provided. Can you, can you just think, like, Peter's like, oh, G- Jesus is messing up. What's he doing? How's he going to send us out here? He's not ready. Just think about if you were there, the things. I mean, think about how much work you, you do just to get you and your family to target. I mean, he's like, go to another town. And you're like, well, we need this, we need that. And just imagine that. Why does he do that? I think he was testing their faith. And really, he expands their faith because they would come across people who would provide for them in amazing ways. And take care of their needs, and then they can point to God's provision for taking care of their needs. The other thing was that really more of a test for the, for the Jews of Israel. He was testing their hospitality and receptivity towards the gospel because they were called to be hospitable. That was like standard practice when when a visitor would come. But were they open, were they receptive to the message of God that had been prophesied for thousands of years to this group of people? The message was for them. Would they be receptive to it? And would they provide a nice cup of water and some bread and some provisions for the travelers bringing them the message? So it was a test for them because he says, look, if if they receive you, bless them. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and move on, don't take it personally. It's them, not you. So I think that's why he did this. And I, I bring this up because... This, I don't, we'll talk about application in a second, but, but I don't think this is a, a principle for us to live by, you know, just to, just to go into the mission field unprepared or to go into our everyday ordinary lives because you could easily spin that. There might be situations and circumstances for that, but I wouldn't make it like a normal rule to do that. And so uh, it, it was for them, not necessarily for us. And so the, the question, um, I think there are two principles that we can learn from this situation, learn from the specific situation the disciples went into. Um, and one is for for when we are receiving um, Support to do the work of Christ, and the other is when we were giving the support. The first one is this: is is a principle. Is faith is a faith principle. And so the question I have for you is: What are some situations where you could trust God to provide for the specific mission or context you're in to do the work of Christ? What are some ways you could trust you could depend on God's provision? to do the mission you've been given in your situation. And I think we have to talk about that for a second because what do we think about when we, or what do you think about when you hear the word evangelism, when you hear the idea of sharing Jesus with people who don't know Jesus, when you hear about proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, where does your mind go? Because I think we need to expand our definition. If you're anything like me, my mind goes either to missionaries who travel abroad and are doing the real work over there somewhere. Because we got it all figured out here. We're good. But it's like we got to, we, it's for those missionaries raising support letters, which it is for them. But it's not limited to just that. And then if we are brave enough, this is what I think about if we are brave enough to do evangelism or sharing the good news here in our own lives, in our own context, it looks like walking up to people we don't know kind of finding a way to butt into their life and then just tell them this really long story and then hopefully at the end of the story seal the deal and make sure they're going to heaven does anybody else relate with that like that's kind of what you think about when you think of evangelism anybody bueller out there um so that's what i think about and so I, i think a better application of this and a way to think about evangelism, way to think about proclaiming the gospel is what do you do? Where do you live? Literally, what does your home look like? What resources do you have? What opportunities have you been given? That is your missionary field. That is your specific assignment. Maybe you spend most of your time trying to help little kids get dressed and fed and diapers changed and just get them out the door. That is your specific assignment right now. And so what would it look like to trust God for his provision to do that role, to do that assignment? It could look like so many different things, but I think it's important to expand our context. I like what they said there. In the scripture it says, As you go, as you go, I would add to it in the message translation, as you go about your everyday, ordinary life. You see how this expands the playing field? It's so helpful to me. And so the second principle that I think we can take away is the hospitality principle. This is very exciting. How can you help and support the work of Jesus through generosity and hospitality? The generosity and hospitality. The obvious and easiest way, I think, is giving money to the local church. I know I'm biased because I'm a pastor, but it's like an obvious easy win. Give a, pers- a specific percentage of your income that you make to support the work of Christ through the local church. Then there's so many other ways to, to give money on top of that. But that's an easy win to to have a direct impact to support the work of Christ with your income. And then a, a more creative way is you start to, like, think of this way. Like, think of a blank slate, a whiteboard session. How can you help support the work of Jesus through hospitality and generosity? I love this. Most of you probably have a table in your home where you eat dinner at. How can you use your table like Jesus' table to welcome people around it? Friends, co-workers, neighbors, strangers even, around this table in the simple act of hospitality, serving a meal and having good conversation to share the love of Christ. This is supporting and doing the work of Christ. It's so simple. If you have a Screened-in ports in the summer, even better. If you have a fire pit in the winter, how can you use that to support and do the work of Christ? If you have a dock, oh my gosh, easy win. Like just bring them to the dock. It's like, oh my gosh. If you have a boat, come on. If you have a second house, come on. How can you use this to support the work of Christ? Bringing people in and sharing food with them sharing conversation with them to show the love of Christ. I met a couple yesterday and um, this this was a retired couple. The husband had been a football coach. He, he worked at a car dealership. Him and his family owned a car dealership most of their lives, but he had been a high school football coach for 20 years. And he said, you know, they were kind of the, the wealthy school he worked at, or he, he, he uh, coached that. But he said there was a lot of kids that, that, just were really poor, didn't have fathers, um, and didn't have enough to eat, and so they started inviting one or two kids over for a meal, and literally just to give them food, and they they would hang out with them. He said after a couple years, the word started spreading, to eventually they had twenty or more kids from the football team eating meals at their house, and he said my wife can cook so good, they loved it, and he said what well, he said this was like one of the best stories. He said one night he had like they just opened up their home. And he said we, we opened, you know, we did our meal and and the ones who didn't have a place, you knew he said you knew the ones that didn't have a place to go back to, really, a, a comfortable place, because they would hang out. The other ones would just eat the food and go. But he said some would just hang out. They really didn't have a great place to go home to. He said that one night they hooked up their PlayStation and he was just letting them there play in PlayStation. And it was 1030, He walks out there, he's like, guys. I'm going to bed. He said, please just lock up the door when you go. But they did this for 20 years. And he said, he said there's story after story where grown men came back to him and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for what you did for my life. He, they shined the light of the gospel with their table. And the only redemptive thing for a video game and their PlayStation. But of the hospitality principle, what can you do with what you've been given to support the work of Christ? And finally, there's one more section, the fun section on persecution. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst among wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent of doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about what you will speak or about what you will say, for what you will say will be given to you by the, at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all my... Beelzebul, which is Satan, how much more will they malign those in in his household? There's so much here, but I just want to cover a couple quick points. You know, what does Jesus mean by wise as serpents and innocent as doves? And why does he say it to his disciples? I think the answer is right in the scripture. He's sending them out among sheep, as sheep among wolves. Wolves want to eat the sheep. In this case, the wolves want to kill the sheep. And so he's saying you have to be on guard. You need to be wise as a serpent. You need to look for opportunities to navigate this dangerous situation. If there's good that could be done, use wisdom and discernment. Use wisdom and discernment about the people you meet. If there's opportunity to get away, he says flee to the next town. But be innocent or gentle as doves. And that's important because what do we do when we're attacked? We want to pull out the sword like Peter did and cut off somebody's ear. He says, no, 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 that's not my strategy. Be innocent as doves, gentle as doves. We're not fighting back here. The kingdom of God has legions and legions, armies of angels. You don't need to fight back in the day of judgment. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves as you enter into this dangerous environment. And and here's that, going back to that principle, if we don't understand the original context, we will misapply this scripture. This was a message primarily for them, and I'd say the first 300 years of church history, every one of the disciples, except John of Patmos, who was sent to the island of Patmos, exiled, and Judas, who hung himself after he betrayed Jesus, was—they died a martyr's death, according to Christian history. And I'll go through the list because they named—they named these disciples at the beginning of this passage. Bartholomew, James, Matthias were beheaded. Thomas and Matthew were speared to death. Peter and Andrew, Philip, Jude, Simon, James were all crucified. And then if you read the details of church history over the next 300 years, Jesus' words uh, were were spot on. I mean, there are stories of the Roman Empire tying um, animal skins onto people, like sewing them on and releasing them into the streets with wild dogs that were really hungry to kill them, maul them, and kill them. Um, There's spearing, crucifixion, all those things, the sword, you know, it, sawed it in half, according to Acts or Hebrews. Um, so many stories of named believers experience the death and persecution Jesus was talking about. For the message was accurate, it was for them. And so my question, oh, i got to cover one more thing before we go into application, is Jesus always, he does this quite a bit. He says these vague statements, and the one he says in this one is, um, before you do all the work of going to all the towns, the Son of Man will return. Well, you won't, well, let me see what he says. Hold on, I messed it up. You will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man returns. You're like, what does that mean? And so the, my answer is, I have no idea. I did a lot of research on this. There's a lot of good commentaries on this, but it feels like they're making stuff up. And what they say is they have all kinds of ideas like, well, what they're really saying was the Jews in the future times like now uh, need to be reached before the Son of Man comes for the second time. That's one really smart guy's interpretation and answer. Because it says there's going to be a great return of Jews in the end times. It's back to Christ. So that could be right. Or um, another one said, well, what he was really talking about was his coming of going to the cross. And so they would have to go to all these towns first and then go to the cross. And so I have no idea, so that's where I'm landing. It's okay because we don't, we don't have to understand all the mysteries that are in Scripture. You would actually be better to just rest in the tension. And, and not feel like you have to have it all figured out, I think that's more helpful. That's just my advice. So what application can we take from persecution here? What does persecution look like today, and how should we respond to it? And again, this isn't a, a, a perfect answer either, but, but take this and test it. I think, of course, people around the world today have been and are being um, put to death for their faith in Christ. If you go to places like China Um, Afghanistan, northern India that bumps up next to Pakistan, they're just killing everybody. Muslims, um, Indians, Christians, everybody. Um, You go to um, different parts of Africa. You go to Iraq, go to Iran. There's people who are, if they become Christians and live as Christians and, and